we would love to think that we could appropriately and rightly say that, that we have surrendered all, that you brought us to a place where we saw that any kind of withholding was only something that was hurting us. But Father, we can't. We can't sing it with with a clean, pure conscience that we have done what we're singing. But, oh God, we want to. And the difference that we see in our lives is that there was a time when that wasn't our desire. But uh, by grace, you have wrought in us uh, new affections, new values, new desires. And so now, Father, though we perhaps certainly have not arrived, we are a people who long to sing with truth. I surrender all. Our Father, we are grateful for all of the kind ways you have demonstrated yourself to us. We, we know how little, how poorly life worked before we came to know Jesus Christ. And now we see that though we still cry, though we still have pain, and though we still have enormous disappointments, we see how much better life works now that we are, have been adopted into the family of God through faith in Christ. We understand, Father, that the more we become like your Savior, the more life will fit and make sense. And so we pray that while we're here for this hour, that you'll give us another piece of the puzzle, another insight as to how we might view life rightly, because we were trained for oh so long to view it wrongly. So Father, lead us in this time of worship. We are not here to be entertained. We are not here to, um, to establish greater friendships. We're here because we have been called to worship. And that is that great process by which we lay before you something worthy of you. So get from us, O oh God, that which worship demands today. Father, we thank you for an opportunity to give. It is indeed our privilege to be able to express weekly that we indeed are people who trust that our financial future is better off in your hands than it is in ours. We make our prayer, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Nine. First Chronicles, way in the Old Testament, before the Psalms. Oh, why didn't I buy a Bible with thumb indentations? First Chronicles, chapter 29. First Chronicles would be found in front of Second Chronicles. Gang, uh, I think you remember that last week we interrupted our study of the parable of the prodigal son to be reminded of a particular theme that um, is often the, uh, the theme of the Christian church, and that is world responsibilities, world needs. Um, the, the, the role and the part that you and I can play 
uh, in that 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 movement to uh, announce and proclaim uh, to the ends of the earth the gospel of Christ. This morning, I uh, interrupt our study of the parable of the prodigal son for another reminder. And it is one that is multifaceted. That is, the reminder is multifaceted. We could come at it from uh, any number of angles. Um, one of the facets is that you and I must understand that everything belongs to God. Another facet uh, would be that God expects our first fruits. You did know that. In fact, um, several times in the, uh, in the Old Testament, firstborn sons were to be given over to the service of the whole Levitical system and uh, the worship of Israel. Another facet might be that you and I are stewards. That is, what we, what we possess, uh, the larger it is, the bigger the stewardship. Now, gang, um, the only people who need to feel uncomfortable in discussions such as these are those who have not yet recognized responsibilities in these areas. And, uh, and apparently, many of you have grasped the enormously liberating truth that God can be trusted with our financial future. Um, apparently, a lot of you have, have understood that because it certainly sees that it seems that um, the bills get paid around here. To the others of you, my job this morning is, is to pass on a lesson, a lesson that so many of us have, have already learned, and the lesson perhaps would be differently stated from different people, but um, for instance, you've heard this, this is almost a cliche, but that you cannot outgive God. It, my, I, my purpose this morning is to say to you that we who have learned that lesson are, are absolutely thrilled about God's faithfulness to us. And, and many of us perhaps would even point to that decision as the most crucial decision that we've made since we became Christians. Is that God can be trusted with our financial future. Far better than our... Um, financial plottings. When I do um, a wedding, part of my, uh, my deal is that you have, to, uh, you have to come to me three times for premarital counseling. Just part of the package, I guess. But um, in the, the third of those three counseling sessions, um, I ask the two young lovers to, to fill out a budget a budget for their new upcoming household and, and, and bring it into my office, written out, uh, so that we can discuss it. And then, not viewing it myself, I wouldn't dream of uh, violating people's financial privacies, but um, I, I asked them to take their budget and move their chairs close together 
and unfold that budget in one of their laps. And then I say, now take a look at that that's sitting in your laps there. And I, and, and I want to ask you this. Do, do what you, does what you see there, is that budget that's in your lap, could you say with, with conviction that that budget honors God? Now, gang, I want to do the same thing with you. Now, I, I know that you didn't bring a prepared budget with you this morning, but um, I want you to mentally do your best to fix that thing in your mind's eye. And I want to ask you, do you think that honors God, that budget that you're thinking about? Can you say that? Let me, let me tell you what I mean by honor God. In light of all of your financial pluses and minuses, does your budget say two things? Does it say, number one, that, that I'm willing to trust God with my financial future, that, that things are arranged such in my spending that it reflects that God is a greater guarantor of my financial safety than is the Dow Jones? Does it say that? And secondly, does it reflect your willingness to sacrifice so that the kingdom of God can be supplied? Now, gang, in my effort to bring you to the place where you can say yes to both of those questions and then others, I want to introduce you to an absolutely enchanting story that is found in the Bible. And if you're at First Chronicles 29, that is my text this morning. You didn't think I had one, did you? But what I, what I would hope is in these next few minutes is that you can somehow existentially insert yourself into this particular scene. Uh, it is a scene of, I think, just delight. It's, there's a certain measure and uh, of excitement and, and joy in it, and, and you'll see it. Uh, at least I hope you will. But uh, the, the, the climax of the story comes in, uh, in 1 Chronicles 29, but the story itself really begins in chapter 28. So let, let's wander through that just a little bit, and, and you'll understand, uh, it'll better prepare you to understand chapter 29. Um, beginning at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 28, uh, let me read you those first three verses. Now David assembled at Jerusalem all the leaders of Israel, the officers of the tribe and the captains of the divisions who served the king, the captains over thousands and captains over hundreds, and the stewards over all the substance and possession of the king and of his sons with the officials, the valiant men, and all the mighty men of valor. Then King David rose to his feet and said, Hear me, my brethren and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house for the rest, the house, a house of rest, for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God and had made preparations to build it. But God said to me, you shall not build a house for my name because you have been a man of war and have shed blood. Now what you have here is that David is at the end of his ministry. That is, he's at the end of his life. His, uh, his, um, his rule over Israel is about to come to an end. It's about to be brought to an end by his own death. And this is his last nationwide address. He has called everybody together. They're all assembled there in Jerusalem. And David has a couple of things that he wants to tell them about. He wants, uh, he, there's a couple of things that he wants to accomplish. First of all, he wants to explain why it is 
that he never got to build the temple. He said, it was in my heart to do it. I really wanted to build a temple so that it would house um, the, the Ark of the Covenant. That's what I really wanted to do. But God said to me, no, David, sorry, you can't do it because you've been such a man of bloodshed. I, 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 don't, I don't want you to build this uh, temple that, that's going to be built. Um, you're not going to get to do it. And then, uh, over in verses 5 and 6, he goes on to say, that is, David goes on to say, And of all my sons, the Lord has given me many sons. He has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord uh, over Israel. Now he said to me, It is your son Solomon who shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. No, David, you won't build the temple, but your son will. So a part of this whole assembly that David has uh, uh, designed is to accomplish, number one, saying, you need to know who the next king's going to be. Uh, out of all my sons, God uh, placed his anointing on this one, Solomon. And by the way, you know the temple I told you that I really wanted to build, uh, but I wasn't allowed? Well, he's going to do it. Uh, I couldn't do it because of reasons I told you about. But my, my son, it has been okayed for him to now, number one, take my, my position as king as when I leave, and that Solomon will be the one that will succeed me. And not only that, he will be the one that will build the temple. And then if you'll notice, I'm still in chapter 28, verses 11 through 19, I'm not going to read those because they're, they're rather um, intricate. But what you get in verses 11 through 19 is the design for the building. Not only was David desirous of building the building, God gave him the plans, just exactly how it was to be built and what was to go in there, the furniture that was supposed to go in there. And it's outlined for you in verses 11 and 19. He gives to David the building plans that, uh, that he's supposed to construct. Now relax, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not here to announce building plans. Um, although I hope that's not too far off, but that's not my purpose. That's not what I'm saying. I'm simply suggesting that uh, David is saying, uh, I'm not going to do it. He's going to be the king. He's going to do it, and this is what he's supposed to build. Now, then in verse 20, uh, he turns to his son, and David said to his son Solomon, be strong and of good courage and do it. Do not fear nor be dismayed, for the Lord uh, uh, God, my God, will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you until you have finished all the work of the service of the house of the Lord. Having, having said that he wasn't going to do it, that David was going to be the king, and here are the building plans, that Solomon's going to be the king, and here are the building plans, he then turns to his son. What a scene. Uh, an, an aged father turns to his boy and says, Now, son... My legacy here in Israel is going to be left in your hands. Son, go get them. Go get it done, son. Don't be shy. Don't be nervous. Don't be afraid. Go do it. And uh, that's the subject, or at least the outline, of chapter 28. Now we come to chapter 29. And you'll notice that it starts with this word, furthermore. David has got a little more he needs to say. Um, he has encouraged his son, identified him as the king, said what he's going to do, and now he's got a, just a little more that he would like to say. Read with me or follow as I read, uh, beginning at verse 2. 
Now, for the house of my God, I have prepared with all of my might gold for things to be made of gold, silver for things to be, bronze for things to be made of bronze, and things iron and iron. He goes on and on to outline in verses 2 through 5 what things that he himself has set aside for this construction project that is about to go on. David tells Israel, here's what is provided for you, here's what we've set aside so that this thing, this, this project of building the temple can be accomplished. Now, now we come, my dear friends, to the response of the people. It's mentioned or begun in verse 6. Then the leaders of the fathers' houses, leaders of the tribes of Israel, the captains of thousands and of hundreds, with the officers over the king's work, offered willingly. They gave for the work of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 uh, derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 uh, 100, of, of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord into the hand of Jehiel, the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced, for they had offered willingly, because with a loyal heart they had offered willingly to the Lord. And, the, and King David also rejoiced greatly. Now, gang, did you notice in those few verses, uh, 6 through 9, did you notice how many times offered willingly was repeated? Three times. It is mentioned in verse 6 and then twice in verse 9. And then we're also told that these people rejoiced in verse 9. Then the people rejoiced, for they had offered willingly. And then we're told later in that same verse, verse 9, that David too, their king, he rejoices. Now, folks, in response to their response, David responds. <laughs> in response to the, to the willingness of these people, David gives us this hymn of praise that begins in verse 10. And that's really what I wanted you to see. David comes to him and says, here's what needs to be done. Their response is utterly overwhelming. And in response to their response, David responds. David sings. Follow. Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty for all that is in heaven and earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might in your hand. It is to make great and to give strength to all. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise you, your glory, praise your glorious name. But who am I? And who are my people? That we should be able to offer so willingly as this. For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. We are aliens and pilgrims before you, as were all our fathers, our days on earth are as a shadow and without and, and then it goes on from verse 16. Oh, Lord, our God, that this all this abundance that we have prepared to build your house. Um, I, verse 17, I know also, my God, that you test the heart 
and have pleasure in uprightness as for me in the uprightness of my heart. I have willingly offered all these things and now with joy I've seen your people who are present here to offer willingly to you. On and on and on it goes. Ladies and gentlemen, can you catch the flavor of that? You know, I said earlier, can you, can you somehow existentially insert yourself in the sea and get caught up in, the, in this, this which is going on. Gang, let, let me just point out a couple of things to you. Look at verse 11. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Verse 14. And of your own, we have given you. Everything that's out there is yours anyway. It all comes from you. And then in verse 12, he says, both riches and honor. Both of them come from you, O oh God. The prosperity I enjoy can be traced back to your hand. And then to me, the coup de grace is verse 14. In the midst of recognizing what's going on, David steps back and pauses and says, but who am I? And, and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? He is absolutely overcome with a sense of his own privilege. Humbled that he can give to God what God had first given to him. He is struck by, by the great profundity of what is going on around him. Now, gang, how does one go about explaining such an event? You know, I've done what David did. I call all the people together, and once a year, as you know, faithfully, I stand up here and talk to you about money. I do, but I do. Once a year, I come, but, but I've never had people respond like this. How do you explain such an event? What would produce this kind of response, such zeal and such willingness? Well, gang, I want to suggest that there's two things on the part of these people that, I, that um, we have to figure out, are they a part of us? First of all, I, I, want you to, I would suggest that there is a fundamental recognition on the part of these people that helps us explain their response. The fundamental recognition, of course, is mentioned in verses 11 and 12. Um, For all that is, heaven, that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Both riches and honor come from you, and we are simply uh, giving you something that you first gave to us. That is a fundamental recognition that these people have, that everything in heaven and earth is yours. Everything that I now possess, God put in my possession. The jet skis, the swimming pool, the two cars, everything in my possession was put in my possession by this God about whom it is said, all in heaven 
heaven and in earth is yours. Now, ladies and gentlemen, is, is sacrificial giving hard to you? Does it come hard? Or, or perhaps I should ask it like this. Is there very little excitement and joy and, and perhaps pleasure in your giving? And I think, ladies and gentlemen, that we can conclude that at least part of the problem is that this fundamental recognition has not become a part of you yet. Part of the explanation for our not having this kind of pleasure in our giving is because we haven't recognized this yet, that all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Perhaps you're under the impression that the reason that you're so well off is due to your savvy, your, your acumen, your prowess, your education, your ability. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, part of that's true. But that's to beg the question. Let me ask you another one. Where did you get that ability to make wealth? Well, ladies and gentlemen, I can only tell you that the Bible has one answer for that. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And it says in verse 18, And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. And, and I'm, I'm, I applaud you for your, your responsible use of those abilities. I applaud you for being a faithful steward over those gifts, that, uh, that, those uh, talents that you have. But ladies and gentlemen, all that is in heaven and in earth is God's including the abilities that you now possess to make wealth. That's, that's one of the ways that I explain this event. That is, how do, how do you explain something like this happening? Well, first of all, I suggest to you that these people have a fundamental recognition that God owns everything. There's a second observation that I would like to make, and that is, in my effort to explain this, there's another thing that I think is true here. There is a fundamental attitude, a fundamental recognition that it, God owns everything, and a fundamental attitude that is mentioned in verse 14. But who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? The attitude is the privilege is all mine. Gang, did you notice as I read what I read how many times the term heart was used? Well, it's mentioned in 28.9 two times. Then we come to chapter 29. It's mentioned in verse 9. It's mentioned in verse 17 twice. It's mentioned in verse 18 twice. Uh, by my calculations, that's seven times that the heart is mentioned in this whole event thing. You know, there's another event that takes place earlier in the history of Israel. It's in uh, Exodus chapter 36, where Moses wants to set out to build a tabernacle. You know, that's the tent that moves around with them. And so he says to the people, we're going to build this thing, and we need this stuff. And so they start collecting stuff. And Moses, in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 36 of Exodus, uh, Moses says, okay, people, that's plenty. That's plenty. Don't, don't, <laughs> they don't give anymore. 
we, 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 we've got way too much here, so just please stop. Could you, could, 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 could you stop your giving, please? Now, ladies and gentlemen, that is not said in 1 Chronicles 29, but the Spirit is there. What do you want? Because it's our privilege to be able to give it. Oh, yeah, 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 Jimmy. Yeah, it's your privilege, our privilege. That's just another one of those preacher tricks to try to get us to do what you want us to do in the first place. Yeah. Well, if you're thinking that, ladies and gentlemen, let me ask you this. Um, would you say that someone who showed you how to be less selfish, less materialistic, and less self-absorbed had done you a favor or had harmed you? And furthermore, if we were to become less selfish and less materialistic, do you think that our marriages would improve? Do you think that our children would notice a difference in us? Ladies and gentlemen, what I'm saying is that giving is just that fundamental. It is one of the few things that I know of that will enable me or allow me to attack my fortress of self. It is one of the few things that I know of that will aid me in my efforts to slay the dragon of stuff. So yes, ladies and gentlemen, I say to you with all confidence, it's my privilege. The privilege is all mine. Giving that deserves the term comes and springs out of a heart. And that's one reason we say so little about this subject around here, ladies and gentlemen, because to rant and to rave produces very little long-term. But when people when people get a fundamental recognition and a fundamental attitude, <laughs> giving is certainly not a problem. So ladies and gentlemen, if this whole issue comes hard to you or, or makes you uncomfortable, then there's another part of the reason that we're on top of here, and that is your heart. Perhaps you give out of duty or appearances or obligation. And I can say there is a duty. There's a duty to giving, indeed. But folks, the enjoyment, the pleasure comes from understanding a fundamental truth and adopting a fundamental attitude. My job, or at least part of my job in this regard, has been and will continue to be to offer you glimpses of people like these whose hearts were engaged and the joy that it brought them so that all of us one day soon will be able to look at that budget that is mentally in our heads and humbly and gladly say that honors God. I was on the Stairmaster, uh, I guess it was Friday. That's where I do my greatest sermon preparation. Um, and I, I had an idea. And um, 
let me tell you before I tell you my idea, we're not gonna do it. But my idea was, I was gonna turn to this congregation, I was gonna say, all right, those of you who can say yes to that question, does my budget honor God? Would you please stand? Don't, 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 don't. you're gonna embarrass me. Um, but I decided against it because it might embarrass other people and, and, it, and it comes pretty close to violating that principle in Matthew 6 that the right hand is not supposed to know what the left hand is giving and all that business. So I decided against it uh, and I'm sure you're glad. But here's what I'd like to do. Don't, don't, don't stand. But just in your own mind's eye, can you say that in the midst of all my financial pluses and minuses, our budget honors God. If you can, stand up mentally. Stand up. Now, while you're standing, I want to say one other thing, and, and I, may, I may be pressing my luck here, but I want to tell you a story. Why you, just remain standing. Um, I heard a preacher tell a story this week about a vacation incident and he'd gone on vacation with his family and, and um, he, they'd stopped by fast food to get something he didn't name which one and so he was standing in line and you know you get there at the wrong time you got these long lines and then you just happen to get in the line with the inept order taker and uh, he said this woman was just botching every order and he was just fuming so he got up to give his order, and she botched that one. He said, in the midst of my, my blood pressure about to go off the charts, I remembered a text that I had studied that morning out of Deuteronomy 10 that said something like, be kind to strangers, for you were once a stranger and an alien when God brought you from Egypt. He decided... Oh, by the way, I left out something. This young woman couldn't speak any English. She was someone who had immigrated into the country and spoke very little English. And that's why she was botching all these orders. And so he remembered this text, be kind to strangers because you were once a stranger and an alien when I brought you from Egypt. And he, he went on to say, as I, as I thought about the text and I thought, okay, well, um, uh, I've got to be nice to her. He said, I could say to myself, all right, I'm a preacher. It's time to be kind and don't let the rest of these people, you know, get, you know, act like you're really a preacher. Or I could say, I remember that I was once a stranger myself and that God in his grace has brought me into the family. Now, the point that he was making is the point that I want to make. Being kind to that young woman there could be done dutifully, stealing my will, or it could be done out of grace, where I remembered what God has done for me in Christ, and as a result of my own experience with him, and the overflow of that be kind to her. Now, to you who are still standing, if there's not much pleasure in it, ladies and gentlemen, 
And let me say the thing that is missing is an awareness that you have come to the place you are by pure, sovereign, amazing grace. It's a wonderful thing to give dutifully. It's far more pleasurable to give as a celebration of grace. Oh, that that would be the motive out of all of our hearts. Let's pray. Our Father, um, we do want to be people who find the same kind of excitement and pleasure in giving back to you what you first gave us as these people of First Chronicles 29. We want to look like them. We want to find pleasure and excitement and joy in the midst of recognizing that you gave it first to us anyway. And now it is our humble privilege to be able to give willingly. Oh God, for those who in this room have already discovered that great liberating truth, I pray that you will confirm it over and over again. But Father, for others, I pray that you'll bring them to the place where they see that all of their strivings can be for naught because it is you to whom we commit our financial future and we're much safer there. Our Father, if you have led people here who have not yet uh, understood the great gospel of Jesus Christ about which they've heard very little this morning, I pray that at least what they have heard will pique their interest and they might find themselves wondering what all the fuss is about. We commit ourselves afresh to the King of Kings, and we do so in his name. Amen. Guys, the way that we close our services with an invitation to you to do a couple of things. First of all,